Well, good morning. Um, I don't have at home personally. Oh, I skipped ahead there. Now you're going to wonder, what was that about? What is that guy? I don't, I don't know about you. Um, I, we, we've gotten rid of cable for many, many years. So, you know, we stream stuff. We have Netflix and all those kinds of fun things. But um, one of the things I don't see anymore is like the really bad evening infomercials. You know what I'm talking about? And, and most of the time, you know, they'll, they'll get you with it's a diet pill or an exercise regimen or, you know, the ones that always got me were the hair growth things where it's like take a pill once and you can grow like a mullet in three days kind of thing. You know, and, and one of the things they all have in common is they have this before and after kind of photo, right? Who here has been really tempted to fall for like a before and after photo at some point in their life? If you're not raising your hand, you're just, you're just a liar, right? It's late, at, it's late at night, you know it's wrong, but you see them and you just, you know, you could never know. Um, most of them are pretty unbelievable, aren't they? Here, the one that I just pulled up is, is right here. Um, I got shredded in six weeks. Um, here, here's the cool thing about this one uh, in particular, is it's actually, if it's unbelievable to you, that's because it is. Um, that photo was part of a documentary by a guy named Christopher Bell to expose these kind of adverts, and those two pictures were actually taken within two minutes of each other, and then photoshopped, like on purpose, to show just how easy it is to manipulate us. And so these photos are, are taken the same day, and, and we can exercise all we want until the cows come home, but in six weeks, there's no way that you are ever going to go from this to that. It's just not going to happen. I'm really sorry if that was your hope. These photos are used, though, because they are insanely effective in getting us to want to try something. Because even if you watch it and you know it's complete hogwash, right, there's still a part of you that's like, well, may maybe... Like, if I really committed to it, you know, I, I could probably look like that in six weeks. Look, if you hire a personal trainer and you give them full autonomy over your kitchen and every moment of your life, maybe in six weeks you could get like a third of the way there. Most of us would quit after the second day with the level of regimen that that would take. But the question is, why are these ads so effective? And there's two reasons. They've actually studied this. The first is an ad concept called controlling the story. And so what happens is uh, how great something is or how good somebody or something looks is a relative concept, right? Like you might think you look good, but then you meet somebody and you're like, okay, I, th I thought I looked all right, but, right? Or you might think that you have a nice head of hair, but then you walk, you know, coming into the hair salon and out walks somebody and you go, oh man, right? Have you ever felt good about yourself until you saw someone else? Maybe it's appearance-based, maybe it's like talent-based. You thought you were a good singer, and then you went and heard so-and-so, right? right? Kathy and Mark the other day, a couple weeks ago, went to see Phil Wickham sing, who actually does both of the first songs we did today. And I warned her. I said, after you hear him sing, you're not going to want to sing up front ever again because you're just not going to feel adequate, right? Relative. Controlling the story means that we have the ability to say something is a certain way, but it looks different based on how it once was. So, for instance, if I say, you know, today... I, I dress quite well. I've really, over the years, improved how I dress and how I look. You would say, maybe you would say, yeah, you know, I agree with you. Maybe you'd say, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Like, like my pastors wear robes, so you're just offensive every morning when you stand here. Right? You, might, you might have your opinion, but if I showed you a comparison of how I used to dress, perhaps say high school, 
where yes, to photo day, I wore a shirt that said, I see dumb people. <laughs> Sorry, mom. <laughs> right now, mom is texting me, because it brought up memories. Or maybe even younger. You go back to these beautiful days. The fanny pack just does it for me. If I still had that fanny pack, I would wear it today. If you looked at those, and then you looked at this, you would say, you know, Vince, you're doing pretty good. <laughs> right? The before and after really tends to put things in perspective. It could always be worse. You could always be preaching in a jumpsuit or a sweatsuit. Right? So there's improvements to be made. The second concept, so that's controlling the story. The second concept is what we call achievability. Part of why these are so effective are because they make us believe that we can achieve it. If you're walking down the street or you look in, a, in Vogue or whatever magazine and you see some gorgeous model, right, you're very tempted to go, yeah, I could never look that way. But if you saw a before photo that looks, to your opinion, worse than you, and then that photo, you think to yourself, oh, there's hope. Like, I, I could actually get there because look, so-and-so looked way worse than I did and, and they got there. So-and-so lost way more weight than I did and, and got there, right? So the comparison not only somehow gets us to control like, oh, it could be worse and it's better, it also gets us to think we can do it. And so that's why these, these two, these kind of before-after photo things are so effective at hitting us, even though we know that like 99% of them are fake. There's a part of us that goes, yeah, if they can do it, I can do it too. Right? It's one of the most effective ad techniques that we have today. And what's interesting is that it's, it's a technique that isn't really all that new. As a matter of fact, Paul in Scripture, uses this exact same technique in the passage that we're looking at today. Now, here's the key difference. Paul is not an advertising executive. Paul is not a liar. Paul is not a deceiver. Paul isn't using this method to trick us into something. He's not painting a before and after picture that really is inachievable or not based on reality. Paul is entirely, completely speaking truth when he uses this technique in the gospel, or in, in the letter to Ephesians that we're looking at over the next few weeks, right? And so in Ephesians 2, the really, the whole chapter is a giant before and after to try to get us to see where we were and where we are and to understand the sharp contrast between those two things. Right, and so this morning, I want to invite us to look at Ephesians 2. Uh, we're going to look at it in two sections and break it up a little bit. And if we could stand as, uh, as I read God's word, uh, we always do that out of a reverence because my words are my words, but God's words are holy. And so as we read those, let's together look at Ephesians 2, first 1 through 10, and then we'll look at 11.22 a little later in our morning. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's the word of the Lord. Be, God. be seated. So, I like to think of this chapter, this whole chapter two, as having kind of four movements, so to speak. And I call them this. Movement number one, you're all dead. Movement number two, but now you are alive. Movement number three, Jesus made that happen. And then movement number four, we are family, right? And yes, every one of you in your head, we are family, right? We're going to unpack those four movements kind of one by one, but that's kind of the big overarching picture of Ephesians 2, is right that we were dead, we are alive, Jesus made it happen, and we are family, all right? So let's, let's look at these uh, individually. First, we were dead. Paul proclaims that we were dead, not ill, not dying, not in danger of death, but actually dead. The, the Greek grammar here is in the absolute. So there's no like coming back from it kind of dead, right? You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. And he's proclaiming that we were entirely, completely, spiritually dead and devoid because of the sin that is a part of our life. He's proclaiming it to the church in Ephesus, and he's proclaiming it to us today. We were dead. Every one of us in this room were entirely dead. Non-functional, not getting up, fully, entirely, finally dead. Right? Sorry to be the, the buzzkill of your morning, but we were dead. And then, after he says that, he fleshes it out in a kind of a very specific progression. Right? There's kind of three ways that he talks about how we were dead. Number one, we follow the course of the world. Number two, we follow the course of the devil, the enemy. And number three, we follow the passions of our own flesh. Anyway, so right, world, devil, our own flesh. Those are the three ways in which we're dead. And so let's look at these. We follow the course of the world. For those of us, for all of us, when we were dead before Christ, we follow the ways in which the world is going. We follow the, the world view of the world around us. We follow the, the culture du jour, whatever is popular in the day, whatever is desirable in the day, whatever way the world is flowing, whether good or bad, we are ultimately in our death followers of the world. We pursue the things that the culture pursues. We value the things that the culture values. We push for the American dream because that's what culture tells us we should be aiming for because that's where happiness and joy and comfort and all those things are found. And so we look for the wife and two kids in white picket fence house, preferably four bedrooms, not in today's interest rates, but you know, someday, maybe achievable, right? And we, we aim for those things. We look to popular opinion to guide us. We model our, our lives after that, which gains us favor in the world's eyes. And we think the way the world wants us to think. And we do the things the world wants us to do. And we order our money and our calendar and our talents to the orient of the world. Right? So Paul says, look, those of us who are dead, you were once all dead. And that's kind of what your basic instinct is. You just kind of go with the way the world goes. 
And as Christians, we have to admit to ourselves, like there's ways in which we still do that every day. And there's ways in which we don't do that, but we, we want to, right? If there are things that, that, that a Christian life demands of us that be kind of nice, if we're honest with ourselves, if it didn't demand. If we could do things the way the world does them, it'd just be easier, wouldn't it? So that's, that's a way when we're dead, we kind of completely are sold out to the ways of the world. We're slaves to the world, so to speak. Right? That's the first one. And remember, Paul is talking to a city, to Ephesus, that, that, whose values, whose way of life, whose worldview were entirely anti-Christian. It was really hard to be a follower of Christ while you lived in Ephesus with the amount of different religions and witchcraft and, and pagan stuff that was going on there and that ruled supreme. Right? It was all about not following the ways of the Lord. And if you were a Christian, you were looked down upon heavily in a city like Ephesus, right? even as Paul is writing to the church there. So we follow the ways of the world. Christians in Ephesus pre-conversion were just rolling in that world. If you were, if you were a person living in Ephesus, like your, your life looked so wicked and so messed up, but to the place that you were in, it was just the way. That's just how it was. You didn't think anything of it. You didn't think you were amoral or immoral or a terrible person somehow. You just kind of did things the way the world did them. That's what it means to be dead in our trespasses and sins and following the ways of the world. We just kind of go along with it. And let the world tell us what is good and bad and right and wrong and valuable and not valuable and so forth. So that's the first one that Paul gives us. The second is we follow the prince of the power of the air, which is a really fancy term for we follow the enemy, the devil. Right? We have an enemy that seeks to deceive us each and every day. He pokes and prods at our relationships, at our desires of our hearts. He, he tries to move us in directions that we shouldn't go. He tries to misconstrue the world that we live in and twist it so that we look at it through his eyes and not the Lord's eyes. And those who are dead are ones who are constantly and in every way totally kind of submitted to the devil's ways. Right? They listen to him. We think back to the first interaction of Satan with Adam and Eve and the way that it's this progressive, slow twisting of truth to get her to eat the fruit. He doesn't just come and say, God doesn't want you to eat it. You should eat it. Right? He has to like connive her into it, and he does. And when, when Paul says, you were once dead, what he means partially is that you were just sold out. Your ears were just so attuned to the enemy that you didn't even really hear what God was saying. It didn't matter how loud he spoke. You just weren't going to listen because your ears were just... Your frequency was tuned right to the devil, right? And the third way is that we follow the passions, the desires of our own flesh. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins are self-centered people. Right? They follow the things that feel good to them. Our aim as people who are dead is to do what gets us to feel good and right about ourselves, right? We pursue things that earn us enough money to have our own house be the way we want it to, to have the vacations we want, to have the comfort we want, to have the stuff for our kids that we want them to have, and all of the stuff that is about us, right? That's why we have people in this world using other people to get ahead and to get what they want. That's why that's even possible. The only way that works is because we're dead in our trespasses and, and sins to a point where we're kind of sold out to our own desires of our own flesh. What we want in life matters more. And so here's the ultimate thing. If you're dead in your trespasses and sins, if I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, my needs are bigger than your needs. And I will trample on your needs and comfort in order to get mine. Right? That's death 
to your own selfish desires, the desires of the flesh. Yeah, there's kind of a, in scripture, there's a sexual kind of connotation to that, but it's not just talking about that. When it talks about desires of the flesh, it's not about that. It's a broader concept of just our own gratifying desires. That could be physically, that could be economically, that could be every which way. And so Paul, based on all these, is painting a picture of spiritual death. Uh, author and pastor R. Kent Hughes puts it this way. He says, the dead, those without Christ, are dominated by the world, the devil and the flesh, as we just said. The world dominates from without, the flesh dominates from within, and the devil from beyond. From every angle of your life, right, you're somehow dominated by things that are not of the Lord. And so he says, these are the terrible dynamics of what spiritual death actually means in the life of a person. And Paul tells us that each and every one of us, that's who we were. That's the before picture. It's way worse than that guy on the screen. Maybe not the one that I was wearing a fanny pack, but, right? but it's way worse than that. Way worse. We're dead. And so then he wants to really make clear that we're dead apart from Christ. And the world, and even a lot of poor Christian teaching today, wants to tell us a different story. That's why Paul is so adamant about this. You might think, why does Paul talk about how dead we are all the time? Like, this is post-gospel. Jesus came, he rose, he's ascended, he's reigning. Can we talk about the good news? Can we please get to the good news? Why does Paul in every letter spend so much time on the negative death side of things before he gets to the point of the gospel? And it's because he knows that our temptation is to shy away from that reality. There's so much poor, bad Christian teaching out there that tries to tell us a different story. It tries to tell us that we're intrinsically good people, that we're just kind of astray. We're not perfect, but we're trying our best, right? I'm just, I'm trying. I'm trying. That's all anyone can do is I'm trying. So we should just keep pushing forward, right? There's plenty of people worse than me. I'm not the worst. As if somehow salvation was graded on a curve. It's not. According to Paul, there's only one grade that every one of us gets, and it's an F. We're dead. There's no levels of it, right? He makes it abundantly clear that apart from Christ, you don't have an inherent goodness in your heart. We're not good people. We're entirely sold out to the world, to the enemy, and to ourselves. Every single one of us would fail the test from start to finish. And we, we wouldn't get a respectable score. We would tank it entirely, right? Now, Paul is certainly not a doom and gloom guy, right? We, we, we have this movement that comes next, and it's a drastic shift. And we know it's a new movement because in verse 4, we have the word that opens with what? But, right? All these things are true. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. But, and this is a big one. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, Paul has to say it one more time, he just can't let it go, made us alive together in Christ, by grace you've been saved. All right. The next movement that takes place is Paul wants you to understand before he mentions anything else. If we look at ourselves, we're tempted to think we're, we're not so bad, right? What we need from Christ is just a tune-up. We just kind of need him to get us over that hump. Some minor help with life's speed bumps. No, 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 no. You're entirely dead. But Christ has made you alive. So you were dead, past tense, and you now are alive, present tense. Notice how he doesn't say we are all dead and we will be alive. He says you were dead 
and now you are alive. For those of us who are in Christ, we're not looking forward to someday when we die having eternal life. Our life's eternal now. We live in it. We might die in the flesh, but you, you will live with Jesus forever. You are alive in Christ. Right? If we can see the before picture of death clearly, it makes the contrast, the after picture, all the more awe-inspiring. And the after is nothing short of awe-inspiring. You have been pulled from death and made alive. Those who are in Christ, those of us who can call on the name of Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, are entirely new people. You're not dead anymore. You wouldn't even recognize the before and the after. It'd be one of those where you look at the screen and go, that's not the same person. Right? You're not the same Your life was hopeless. You wouldn't have pulled yourself out from any of it. You were living in the lies of the world and the enemy and your own self. And now you live. And then the third movement we call Jesus made that happen. Paul really hammers this point home. This is one of those times where he's just repetitive over and over and over again. Every verse for like six verses just keeps bringing it back and bringing it back. Because he needs you to understand this thing. The fact that you were dead and now alive has absolutely nothing to do with you. You didn't do anything. You're a passive participant, not even a participant. You're a passive person just there. Dead people don't raise themselves. They're dead. They can't do anything. They just lay there and decompose. But God came and made you alive, right? Verse 4, God being rich in mercy loved us. Verse 5, he made us alive, right? Grace is what saved you. Verse 6, Our seat in heaven is only in Christ Jesus. It's not our chair, it's his chair. We get to sit in it, right? You didn't build yourself a chair in heaven. He made it and he lets you sit on that chair when you get there. That's how you get to be on the throne. God shows us, verse 7, immeasurable grace and kindness. It's him who did it. Verse 8, again, you've been saved by grace. And then just in case you didn't get it, End of verse 8. And this is not your own doing. Just in case that's not abundantly clear. Like five, six times. And then verse 9. It's not a result of your works. Like we get it, Paul. But Paul understands that every part of our, 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 our way of thinking as people who are still living under the, under the fall somehow is to have some inkling of thought that we might have something to do with it. And so Paul, over and over again, and God is the one who loved. You didn't do anything. And you are saved by grace. And by the way, the chair that you sit on in heaven is Jesus' chair that he lets you borrow and sit on. Right? And and, and it's by grace. And, and, And when I say by grace, it means not by works. And you didn't do anything. It's a gift. Right? And then in verse 10, we are his workmanship. He's the worker. We're just there. Right? We're the project. He's the person forming and shaping the project. And in verse 9, we get the reason for why Paul hammers this home so much. So that what? No one can boast. So that no one can boast. This is the heart of the gospel that we need to be reminded of constantly, daily, day in and day out. So many of us live lives with guilt and with fear. 
We look at God as someone who is watching our every move and we try to think about when we wake up in the morning, depending on what we did the day before, how much he does or doesn't love us, how he doesn't or does look at us in that moment. If God was sitting across from me, I wouldn't like the face that he's making at me. I'd feel like he was really disappointed in me and we walk around with that guilt and that shame and that weight because we're constantly worried about disappointing God and we feel that way because we feel like somehow we have anything to do with our spiritual growth. We don't. We feel distance from God based on our actions somehow. But Paul paints the real picture here. Paul tells us, if you feel distant from God, it's not because you are or at least were anything or did anything. If you feel like distance from God, it's perceived on your end, but it's not real. If you feel like there's nothing you can do to get closer to him or in his good grace, it's because you can't. God is the one who approaches you. You're dead, remember? Dead people don't do anything. He made you alive. The gospel is not a pick-yourself-up news. It's a you-are-being-carried-because-you're-lifeless news. You're lifeless. God is not closer or more distant from you on any given day because of what you've done, because God knows that you, apart from him, are lifeless. He's carrying you because he loves you, because he wants you. Because he wants to call you as his own and use you for his kingdom to bring glory to him. It doesn't matter what you did the night before. He died for it. He knows you're dead. If you're trying to somehow make God believe that you're not dead, good luck. He's well aware of who you are and what you are. And in the midst of that, he comes in and he picks you up and he says, you are now alive. And you go, well, I don't deserve it. He says, no, you don't. But yet here you are, living. We still live in this world. The result is that no one gets to boast. And we don't get to say that somehow we're better Christians than anybody else. We don't get to say that we're more spiritually advanced than anyone else. We don't get to look down on people, right? We still live in this world and we are newly alive. But we don't always feel it all the time. Sometimes it's hard, especially for new Christians, to start to think about what it means to walk in this newness, right? You hear the the gospel and you commit your life to Christ and you say, okay, I'm going to walk with you all the days of my life. I'm yours. I'm sold out to you. And you say, I was dead, but now I'm alive. But then you go to work the next morning and things kind of feel the same and you're not sure how to actually live out this aliveness, this new reality that you're a part of. Well, that's where the fourth movement comes in. And Paul describes what that movement looks like as we get to the rest of this chapter. And so I'm going to ask us to stand one more time. We split it up today. We're exercising. And we'll look at 11 through 22. We get movement number four, we are family. Try not to sing while we read. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's all of us, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, Jesus, who you, Jesus, who, oh, Jesus, you who once were far off, there we go, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both One, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself 
one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, the word of the Lord. Have a seat. The last part of this whole equation is we are family, right? Before Jesus came, you had God's people, the people of Israel, the Israel they said commonwealth here, right? The, the actual people group on earth, Israelites, right, were God's chosen people. And everyone else was not part of God's chosen people. They just kind of ran. Now, does that mean God wasn't sovereign in their life? No. But the Lord called them only unto himself, and he chose to let his work be displayed through them. Throughout all of creation, from the very beginning of the creation all the way through to when Jesus came. And now that Jesus has come, he's saying, look, we are no longer grafted into being the people of God by the covenants and the laws and the circumcision and all the rituals that we keep. We're now under one spirit. Christ died so that all people, Gentiles and Jews alike, would be living under one umbrella and so that they could live together in peacefulness. He grafts all people into one body of Christ together. And so the Gentiles and the Jews all of a sudden had equal status. In the early church, that's what you see so much feuding about. The Jews want to keep living the way things were. And there's constant battles over food laws and circumcision laws. And yes, you can become one of God's people, but you have to do all the Jewish stuff. And they're saying, no, all that stuff is gone now. The moral law stands. You still shouldn't kill one another and those kinds of things. But the ceremonial stuff, the Lord fulfilled the law through Jesus on the cross. And you are now grafted into one people, one body. The final piece of the good news is not just that he makes us alive, but that he grafts us into his covenant people, his family. And we think of that in an eternal way, right? We are heirs to the promise. We have a seat next to God in heaven. When we get there, there's Jesus sitting on the throne and we also get to be with him. We're part of that. He calls us sons and daughters. So in a cosmic, eternal, to spiritual type of sense, he grafts us into his family. But he also grafts us into his family in a very real, physical, local sense. And that's what we think of as the local church. We're grafted into the family of God by being part of a local body, right? And he gives his people the gift of the local church. That's why the church starts right after Jesus ascends, right? The spirit comes, they start speaking in tongues, things go a little crazy, they can all hear each other in their own native tongues somehow miraculously, and then the church starts, in one area, and it grows to a couple thousand, and then it spreads through Paul's missionary journeys, and there starts to be local representations, Ephesus being one of those places. And the people of God that are made new, if you're baptized into the name of Jesus, you start to be a part of a local body, and the design of that local body is to help you, to guide you, to shape you, to shape us together into how we live the newness. I became a Christian. What do I do next? 
Be a part of the local church. Invest in it. Grow in it. Come to it. Don't just come and figure out what it can do for you, but come and be a part of it. Be be life together. Do life together. Be in each other's homes, at each other's dinner tables. Be in community with one another. When you struggle with stuff, come and confess that stuff to, to one another. And grow together and help each other and shape each other and love each other and pray for one another and serve for one another and help the newer ones figure out how to do this new life thing. He gives us that and he says, Jesus is the cornerstone. By the way, this is just a free little tangent. This is one of the arguments against papal authority. We have the, the, the whole idea of why we ever had a pope was that we have Paul, you know, Peter is called, it's like Peter is the rock and on this rock I'll build my church. And there's debate in that passage of who's the rock? Is it Peter or is it Christ? Well, here we, we have a pretty clear, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the rock, right? He's the authority. The cornerstone of the church is Jesus. And then the prophets and apostles are the foundation that started it all. And from there it grows and builds and we get all the way to today where we as a local body, Stowe Presbyterian Church, we get to live out this newness together. We get to come and be a part of each other's lives. We get to speak truth to one another even when it's uncomfortable and a little awkward, just like a real family with, you know, the crazy uncle that everybody just kind of listens to. Right? All, those, all those dynamics are part of this church family and we get to just be together and do life together and shape one another and care for one another and live out this newness. And we do it for years and years and years. And then someone new comes and comes to know Christ and we go, how do I live out this newness? Well, just come be a part of what we're doing and, 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 and see for yourself and grow in it and be shaped by it and fall down every once in a while and look awkward. And it's okay. We still love you. It's the beautiful gift. It's the fourth piece, the fourth movement that Paul spends half of this chapter on. He says, look, not only did, were you dead, not only were you now alive, but Jesus did that for you. And then he gave you this local thing, this, this church concept, this, this thing to be able to live that out, to learn how to walk in the newness. What a great gift. SPC exists to be a place where Christians learn, grow, and stumble and support And care for one another. Together towards this goal of living out a new life. As we've seen and continue to see, Paul is always stressing the family aspect of the gospel. Every time he talks about the good news, he talks about being grafted into the the body. Because Paul understands the tension between the new life and the sinful world. This already but not yet. And he knows that we need a body to function together in community to draw that new life out of us. That he puts there. Christ's death on the cross. And so that's why we're here. That's why it matters so much that you are here. Right? I, I, I gotta be really honest with you. Like your, your session and myself, you know, we, we really could care less about church attendance. We care far more about engagement because we, we don't just want to be able to say we have so many butts in the seats on Sunday morning. Honestly, I could care less if there's 300 or 20 people here. What I care about is that this is a place where people are engaged in the gospel and in the business of drawing new life out of each other. However many people that is, the Lord gets to decide that. We don't sweat those things. But this is a place where we gather, where we don't guilt trip one another, we don't make each other feel worse than, but we allow each other to just have the space to grow and figure out what does new life mean? 
What does this incredible gift of the gospel mean in the everyday? What does it mean for my work? What does it mean for my friendships? What does it mean for my marriage? What does it mean for me as a parent and how I work and play and raise and, and think about growing my children? Right, what does it mean as a, as a grandparent who's in whatever situation I'm in with kids and trying to kind of instill the Lord's stuff in my grandkids or great-grandkids? How does that all look together? How do I live life differently? How does new life affect my, my finances? What do I do with that? Am I just supposed to give it all away? Well, maybe, maybe not, but let's, let's explore those things, right? How does the gospel actually affect the everyday monotony of our lives? That's why we're here, to learn and grow in it together. And it's a gift that God gives us. Here's where you rub against other Christians. Here's where truth gets spoken. Here's where you can be vulnerable about your struggles. Here's where you can flee when the world gets tough and you can find refuge with your brothers and sisters and breathe for a second. Here's where you can get to know more about who God is. Here's where you can learn to serve and love the way that Jesus serves and loves God, when you were dead, picked you up and he revived you. And then he brought you to his hospital, the church, to be healed and nourished and cared for. Right? Don't check out against the doctor's orders. He put you here for a reason, for your own goodness, so that you might grow in him. My prayer is that through Paul's word, we might see a stark contrast of who we were and who we are. That might cause a rejoicing in your heart. Right? That you wouldn't look at your old self with a guilt and a shame, but you would just say, man, look how far the Lord carried me. It's incredible. He's so good. Right? That we would then take that, that humbled reality, understanding that we didn't do a thing and Jesus did it all, and that we might be compelled and convicted to live that local expression out in his kingdom until the day that he comes back. And the local church is no longer necessary because we're all just worshiping together all over the earth, on every continent, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Right. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we're so grateful. We're grateful to be a part of your kingdom. Lord, we're grateful for this community with all of its goodness, with all of its flaws and all of its messes and all of its people. And some of us are, are, are crazy and that's okay. We're just gathered to be a part of your body. And man, we're just, we're grateful for what you've made this place to be. We're grateful for the, the people that you've brought here and the way that they are and the way that each and every one of them affects and shapes this, this place, this community of faith. We pray that we would just continue to grow more and more into a, a people that do life on life together, that are shaped by your gospel and your word together in community. We pray that you would use this place to strengthen us, to encourage us, to reprimand us when we need it, even though we don't want to hear that that we ultimately might become more and more like you. We were dead and we are now alive. Praise be to God. We love you and we praise you. And together, all his people said, Amen. Amen.